Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. International Women's Day is celebrated every year around the world on March 8th. Today, according to United Nations Women, the theme for this year's observance is Gender Equality Today for a Sustainable Tomorrow. Sustainability is central to the work of Georgia's youngest certified farmer, six-year-old Kendall Ray Johnson. Jerry's Habima Theater empowers special needs actors by putting on an annual musical. This year, it's Mamma Mia! We'll hear from artistic director Kim Goodfriend and actor Cynthia Outman. First, long overdue recognition for empowering women and people of color. In historical accounts of feminist activism, few extol the accomplishments of one of the earliest frontline fighters. Pauli Murray, lawyer, activist, writer, and the first black female Episcopal priest, is finally having her story celebrated in the documentary My Name is Pauli Murray. The film was created by the Emmy Award-winning filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen, previously known for their documentary RBG. When I spoke with co-director Julie Cohen over Zoom this past fall, she explained how her work on the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary led to her discovery of Polly Murray. Betsy and I learned about Polly Murray towards the end of the process of editing RBG when we saw that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as a young lawyer, had put Polly Murray's name on the cover of the first brief that she ever wrote for the Supreme Court about gender discrimination. RBG's argument was that equality for the genders is secured by the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution in the Equal Protection Clause, which is most commonly and at that point was solely used to prevent racial discrimination. RBG said, hey, this could be used for gender discrimination as well. And that idea 
actually came from Pauli Murray, who had made the same argument six years earlier, both in a law review article, a law journal article, and a federal case that Pauli argued for a court, not, not the Supreme Court, but before a federal district court in the South. So RBG was in fact giving a nod to Pauli Murray. We made note of that name on the brief, but didn't pay that much attention. Like, you know, people on our team said, oh, I, th I think I've heard something about this person playing a role in the law, you know, important legal uh, works. So when the film came out and we're, you know, starting to talk to people all around the country about RBG's contributions, people would ask us in Q and A's like, whose shoulders did RBG stand on? And when we said, well, there was this other lawyer, Paulie Murray, who had this idea about the equal protection clause being used for women um, even earlier than RBG did, that led us, as things do in this day and age, to a Google search in which we discovered Pauli Murray's work on gender discrimination was just the tip of the iceberg of this just enormous career in law, in activism, as you pointed out, not just for women's rights, but for civil rights in the labor movement. Pauli was also a tenured professor, a published, very accomplished author, and ultimately the first black woman-identified Episcopal priest. So... There was just so much in this life that we kind of almost couldn't believe that we hadn't heard of this important 20th century figure before. And that kind of set us off on the journey to learning more about Pauli Murray. Yeah. In what other ways were RPGs and Murray's lives connected in their work? Well, in fact, there were several other connections. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg was doing a summer associateship as you do in, in law school at the esteemed New York law firm, Paul Weiss. She went to, to be a summer associate there. There was already a black woman lawyer at the firm, and it was Pauli Murray, an associate at Paul Weiss in the late 1950s. Pretty stunning for Pauli to get that job in, in that period. So they first met then, and Pauli actually gave RBG a copy of the great uh, family memoir Pauli wrote called Proud Shoes, which RBG, being a big reader and fan of literature, read and was really thrilled with and impressed by. The next point of intersection was actually Pauli Murray was serving on the board of the American Civil Liberties Union and was pushing really hard for the ACLU, which at the time was very much in the battle for racial equality, but really hadn't jumped into the idea of gender equality, which was considered quite a radical uh, notion in the 60s and 70s. And Pauli helped push for the formation of a women's rights project at the ACLU and in fact kind of pressed on the ACLU to bring in this young lawyer that Polly had heard about in New Jersey named Ruth Bader Ginsburg to be one of the one of the leads in that organization so they knew each other on the ACLU board as well yeah early in the film the question is asked how can one person be so pivotal and yet so few people know her name? Why were her accomplishments not known to many people even during her lifetime? Well, you know, there's all sorts of reasons. It's a really good reminder of how our history is maybe not so simple as what showed up in the textbooks. You know, some of the reasons are that Polly was 
ahead of the curve in so many different ways. Pauli was often taking up issues before, before there was any structure or any broad-based interest in them. Also, you know, within the civil rights movement, Pauli experienced sexism. Within the women's rights movement, Pauli experienced racism. Often, Pauli was kind of jumping on to the next thing by the time that attention was brought to a certain issue. Pauli was just always ahead of the times. And then in addition, there's the interesting part of Pauli's life having to do with sexual orientation and gender identity. We could only sort of guess what led to us not learning about Pauli Murray in school as much as we, we feel people people should have learned. But it's actually sort of an important reminder. Um, a professor at Yale named Tina Liu, who is now the head of Pauli Murray College at Yale, which is just within the past four years, was named after Pauli Murray, makes the really great point in the film that like those who carefully study history understand that the people who are most important and most influential are not necessarily overlapping with the people who are the most famous and the most celebrated. That's an understanding and a perspective about how we look at American history that's really important and that we all need to be paying more attention to. How did the treatment of women come as a shock to Polly as she entered college? Yeah, so, you know, Polly was typically of the day, maybe, just not like feminism wasn't something that that people were thinking about. And Polly had a great experience in New York City as an undergraduate at Hunter College, which was an all women's college, and then moved on after being rejected from a master's program at the University of North Carolina, because the UNC just said directly in their rejection letter, like, no, we do not admit black students. It was like that. It was that straightforward. So Polly, with a growing interest in civil rights, decides to study at Howard University Law School, the greatest at the time, and some might still argue today, the greatest institution for civil rights law in, in the country, where like all of the lead civil rights lawyers are, are, were professors at the time, Thurgood Marshall and others. Polly's thinking, you know, this is where I'm going to go and study and learn about equality and shows up as the only woman to graduate from her her law school class, raising a hand in class and finding that the teachers won't call on her because she's a woman, or at least she's being perceived as a woman. And this comes as a real shock. It's a rejection that Polly sort of fought through with intelligence and skill. Basically, in Howard, the grades were posted and when Pauli's started like getting the top score in every single class and the other students noticed that, like it did kind of make a difference. And uh, Pauli even said by second year, all of a sudden, like, you know, a professor was going to was going to acknowledge that because it, there was sort of no arguing with the level of intellect. But um, I think it came really as a slap in the face for Pauli that at an institution that was fighting for equality and fighting discrimination, that there would be this, you know, kind of harsh discrimination um, on multiple levels against Polly on account of gender. Yeah, you mentioned Thurgood Marshall. There is an iconic photo of Thurgood Marshall with his team on the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court. What's missing from that picture? Yes. Well, what's missing is is Pauli Murray, who had developed the idea behind Brown versus Board of Education in a paper Pauli had written at Howard Law, arguing that the way to deal with the 
at the time accepted legal structure and uh, Supreme Court ordained legal structure of separate but equal laid out in 1896 by Plessy versus Ferguson, Pauli's view was we shouldn't just be trying to push for equality, we should get rid of the whole structure of separate but equal because by separating the races, you are guaranteeing that there can't be equality. When Pauli raised these issues in class at Howard, the result was sort of a dismissiveness and even laughter. But in the end, 10 years later, in Brown v. Board, that's exactly what the NAACP Legal Defense Fund argued, and it's exactly uh, had, had come from a paper that Pauli had written in third year of Howard Law. It was pretty extraordinary that she wrote that as a student. Was there any thank you, any acknowledgement she received from Thurgood Marshall or the legal team that we know of? Well, Pauli said in an audio tape that we have that the then dean of of Howard, Spotswood Robinson, did say like, oh, we took out your paper and it was really useful in crafting our argument. As part of the research for making this film, we actually went back and looked at that law school paper and saw that like some very specific ideas that are in the paper were in fact adopted in the briefs that the NAACP wrote for the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education. So how much exactly Polly was thanked or acknowledged, we don't know. We know Polly wasn't paid for the work. So, you know, in some ways that would be uh, obviously for legal work, the most just and fair uh, thing to do. How much recognition did Polly get for that important innovation? I think the answer is clearly not enough. Hmm. Stepping back a bit, after moving to New York from North Carolina, Polly was struck by some of the freedom she observed that black people had in the North, though there was still ample discrimination. Would you discuss how far ahead of her time she was in the way she protested? Polly's protest against segregation, often before the more famous movements, although Polly was far from the first person to be protesting unfair segregation laws. Those things have been happening since segregation existed. But in some ways, what, what distinguished Polly, I think, was just an optimism. A good example was when Polly was a student at Howard and on U Street, a largely black commercial area in Washington, D.C., there were restaurants and diners that would only seat and serve white people. You know, sometimes those things can be accepted as, oh, that's just the way it is. But Polly's view to that is like, it's unjust and it's ridiculous and we should fight it. And Polly led a group of students um, as a law student, and there were also undergraduates who put together a very carefully crafted, peaceful protest. We're not going to yell. We're basically going to bring our books and uh, papers into the seats, and we're just going to sit there quietly and do our work, try to order food, and almost dare the owners of these establishments to kick us out. In the end, after some ongoing protests, Polly actually succeeded in desegregating this uh, cafeteria, the Little Palace Diner, and I believe another one on U Street in Washington through a well-coordinated campaign of nonviolence, you know, exactly the kind of campaign that became, and this is 1943, so the kind of campaign that became much more common and famous 15 years later. Did her path cross that of Martin Luther King Jr.? 
Yes, so Pauli's path did cross Martin Luther King Jr.'s. In fact, we did find some things in Pauli's archive, Pauli's notes on a draft of a piece of writing that Martin Luther King had written. And clearly there was some correspondence with Martin Luther King. And of course, Pauli was following MLK's footsteps when in the 1970s, Pauli decided to pursue the seminary and sort of making the connection between politics and the fight for justice and equality with larger spiritual questions. And Pauli very much described having been influenced by MLK's both spirituality and activism in that path of Pauli's life. Hmm. Among my favorite takeaways from this film is the phrase confrontation by typewriter. Yes. How do the correspondents with First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt come about? Yeah, so what a what a wild situation and maybe a hard one to imagine today. And you know, an ordinary citizen writing to the president and the first lady and getting a response that leads to a lifelong correspondence and even friendship. So it's 1938, and as I mentioned, Pauli Murray has been rejected from the University of North Carolina for being black. Shortly thereafter, FDR stops by University of North Carolina to give a speech. And his speech is about how great UNC, I think, I believe he's getting an honorary uh, doctorate there. And he gives a speech about how great UNC is and how it's this bastion of liberalism. And Pauli listens to that. It was broadcast on the radio and thinks like, well, that's ridiculous. They're not that liberal. They, you know, they're, they're actually even teaching some classes about African-Americans and about race. And yet they won't admit a black student such as myself, won't even consider it. So Pauli writes a beautiful extremely outraged letter to FDR saying what you said about UNC is all wrong. And by the way, expressing real outrage that FDR was not supporting federal anti-lynching legislation, which was quite a big issue in Congress at the time and which um, we should point out has remained an issue over the years and has never been passed. The, the letter sort of wound up to a point where Pauli says, have you raised your voice loudly enough against the burning of my people, me- meaning black Americans? Pauli sent a letter to FDR, but also made a carbon copy, sent it to the office of Eleanor Roosevelt, thinking like, oh, it's a little more likely that the first lady might have an opportunity to look at my letter. Somehow, whoever was vetting the mail to the White House at that point actually passed the letter on to Eleanor Roosevelt, probably because it's a clearly well thought out and uh, strong and beautiful letter. Eleanor Roosevelt wrote right back and Pauli received that letter and that led to a lifelong correspondence and even, you know, they visited one another. Pauli went and visited uh, Eleanor Roosevelt at the White House and had tea there, also went to the Roosevelt's summer estate in, in upstate New York. So this really became a friendship, but a friendship in which Pauli Murray never pulled any punches. Like if Pauli thought that what FDR had done was wrong or in a great uh, Pauli phrase, uh, Millie Mouth, Pauli would just tell Eleanor that and Eleanor, would always respond, say, I, you know, I understand this, even if I don't completely agree with you. Well, effectively, her first letter to the president and Mrs. Roosevelt was a very politely worded, how dare you? I mean, it was confronting just what needed to be addressed. 
Yes, and how interesting that Eleanor chose to, to respond to it. I mean, the, the great line that we include in the film is, is Eleanor Roosevelt saying, like, you know, just be a little patient. The South is changing, but don't push too fast. But it was the beginning of a dialogue. And I think both of these people, you know, saw it that way and chose to 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 engage with one another, even when... I think Polly certainly would have been justified in being outraged by Eleanor Roosevelt's position at the time. In the later years of her life, you mentioned Polly Murray entered the seminary and was the first black woman to be ordained as an Episcopalian priest. What led her to that decision? Yes, so Polly had a really sustaining 15-year romantic relationship with our Irene Barlow. The two met when Polly was at the law firm Paul Weiss, where Irene was the office manager. They fell in love, needless to say, perhaps, in this era, because we're talking about going back to the late 1950s. This was a not a public uh, relationship. As far as the world knew, they were just friends, but actually they were lovers and essentially a married couple in, in this day and age, most likely would have been. Irene ended up getting cancer and and dying. Polly helped nurse her through that. And then when Irene died, it was devastated, not only to lose the love of your life, but also doing it in a way that had to be less public than, you know, the morning wasn't public and that made it all the more painful. That led to a crisis of faith for, for Polly, just being really angry with God in Polly's own words, but in such a way that rather than sort of turning away from God, Polly thought, like, I, I need to spend the rest of my life pushing for something bigger and looking at bigger meaning. And in Polly's view, that was that was the church, which Polly had grown up in and had always meant something. And Polly and Irene, one of the things that they had kind of bonded over in the first place was both being devout Episcopalians. That led Polly to decide to go to the seminary and study for the priesthood at a time, by the way, when Polly entered the seminary, the Episcopal Church was not ordaining women. So Polly, again, was just taking a leap of faith that maybe things would change. Sure enough, they did. And Polly was, in fact, ordained as an Episcopal priest. Her poetry is gorgeous, just exquisite poems that appear in the film, and we hear her voice. Isn't that her voice reading it? Yes, you hear a voice throughout the film, and we never use anyone else to be Polly Murray's voice. Those are all actual recordings of the real Polly Murray. Uh, Polly's voice was so strong that we just wanted to to use it throughout. The poetry is fantastic and ended up being, I think, more a part of the film than we had initially intended because we found that so often a poem would express ideas that came across in the, in biographical material that really helped kind of weave one scene into the next. And, you know, it was really astounding to us how often Polly's poems felt very relevant for the current day, even though they were written, you know, going back to the 1930s. Indeed. But given the prominence of her poetry in your film, what are your hopes for serious study of her literary output now? Well, let me say this. I mean, I think one thing that we're excited in terms of the film is how it kind of, you know, because of the way that people watch and like to talk about documentaries, that it helps to 
popularize some of Pauli's work in a more general way, there has been actually some great academic study of Pauli Murray's legal work and Pauli Murray's writing. You know, we certainly are not discovering Pauli Murray here. Academics in general and Black women academics in particular have been writing about Pauli for decades. Um, and it's just maybe taken the rest of us a little bit too long to, to catch up. I mean, in my view, you know, I think there's actually been some great writing about Pauli as a literary figure. What we're, what we're hoping is that the attention that comes with making a documentary and like going out and doing media attached to a documentary will lead more kind of just ordinary people to go out and, um, and read Pauli's books. The interest has been brewing over the past four or five years. And in that period, all of Pauli's works have been reissued, including the incredible collection of poetry that's called Dark Testament that I would recommend anyone go get. Her poetry, it's not just that it's beautiful, it's, it's quite accessible. I think readers will find it, uh, even people that aren't like the hugest poetry fans in the world will find it a really great read. Julie Cohen, co-director of the documentary, My Name is Polly Murray. The film is available for streaming on Amazon Prime. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, We'll continue our celebration of International Women's Day and hear about a local production of Mamma Mia, featuring actors with disabilities. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Oh, the fun, upbeat music of ABBA. You cannot help but dance or sing along when you hear Dancing Queen. And you can hear more of this music in Jerry's Habima Theater production of Mamma Mia, playing at the Marcus JCC through March 13th. Jerry's Habima Theater is Georgia's only theatrical company featuring actors with disabilities, along with professional actors from the community. Joining me now via Zoom is the Marcus JCC Director of Theater and Visual Arts, 
Kim Goodfriend, and Jerry's Habima Theater actor Cynthia Outman. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. Kim, the last time we spoke was in March of 2020, the week before the world shut down for the pandemic. And that was also the week Jerry's Habima Theater was supposed to open Mamma Mia. Were you able to have any performances? Yes, we were. We were able to have our opening night. And during that performance, the agency administration made decisions about the rest of the run. We were hoping, I think as everybody was, that this was going to be something short term. So we opened on Thursday, March 12th, 2020. And the day after the nation and the world shut down. It was quite the Friday the 13th. Oh my. Did the theater pivot during the pandemic? Eventually. How? How so? Jerry's Habima Theater did pivot. We had an opportunity with the licensing company to hold the rest of our contract together and book new dates. And then because Jerry's Habima Theater and its actors seemed to want to try to do something during the pandemic, we did do a showcase in 2021 with actors who would like to opt in to a a modified sort of review of many of the last productions that we've done. So snippets or vignettes from over 30 years of production. It was a a sort of a film version of the kind of things that we do. Not a filmed theater show, but a film version. And it, it was successful, but we missed everyone that wasn't there. And we were very lonely in the building. Oh, I can imagine. Kim, do you have favorite numbers that the actors perform in this show? I enjoy production numbers. I enjoy seeing everybody on stage working through and doing all the pieces, all the pieces of the pieces that we've been putting together. And this time around for any large production, I imagine this is other theaters are feeling this also, we're working in smaller groups and it's really only until everyone can be on stage that we can see it all. So I would say that, uh, especially for a show like Mamma Mia, the production numbers, Dancing Queen and Mamma Mia, when we can see everyone, those are my favorite moments because everyone knows what to do. 35 people know where to go and what to sing and how to do it. I enjoy that process. I like seeing it from the beginning and then seeing what it becomes. Would you describe the feeling of having the actors 
back together and rehearsing in person again. Delicious. <laughs> first rehearsal, which our first rehearsal was scheduled for Sunday, January 17th, I believe. It was the first and only snow day of 2022. So we didn't have a rehearsal that day. So the next day, um, we worked together again, and it was lovely to see everybody. And with uh, those abbreviated hugs that everybody's doing, you, you run towards someone and then realize uh, we're not hugging anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that was wonderful and difficult. And it, it became a journey that we all went on. And every day, decisions had to be made of how can we make this work so that we can get to this conversation, Lois, I, I, even maybe even four weeks ago, I was still wondering if we would we would get to a place where we were talking about live performances. So I'm quite happy to be doing this and, and being being here and working with Cynthia again. Yeah, Cynthia, this is your 19th production with Jerry's Habima Theater and the first production since the start of the pandemic. So many things have been different due to the pandemic. How has Habima been different for you? Habima has been different for me because we haven't been able to socialize with our friends as much. And we have to wear masks every day. And we're not supposed to hug each other since we have to socially distance. But there's a good thing about sitting alone. It gives me a chance to look over my lines and choreography, and it makes me a better actor. Oh. What do you think is the best part about acting? The best part about acting is it gives me confidence, and it makes me feel good about myself. It lets me show my true talent. Most of all, it makes me happy, and it is fun and rewarding. And what do you find most challenging about acting? The most challenging part for me is being able to sing on key. <laughs> I think that's true for a lot of singers as well. Yes. <laughs> Cynthia, what is something you want people to know about you as an actor? I want people to know that I love acting and I put my whole self into it every time I perform. Have you missed anything during this rehearsal process? During this rehearsal process, I miss the warm-ups that we do on stage as a whole cast. And I miss the close contact that we have with each other. And also, I miss the Hugs and the high fives. <laughs> I'm with you completely on that. I miss hugging, too. Why is Habima important? Habima is very important to people who have special needs. It is an outlet for us to get our inner emotions out. It lets it show the world that we are capable and talented. It helps us to reach for the stars, for new opportunities to grow in a place where we feel safe, supported, encouraged, and inspired. Do you like rehearsals? Yes, I do like rehearsals. <laughs> Why? 
because we are practicing together five days a week and it makes us all better actors. They help us to do our best acting so we can put on a good show. Would you tell me something, please, about yourself that might surprise our listeners? Something about me that would surprise your listeners is that I graduated with my high school class of 1996 with honors and a regular diploma. I graduated from DeKalb Technical Institute in 1999 with honors and a diploma in the education paraprofessional training course. And I worked as a parapro for Coralwood School for 19 years. Wow. You are very accomplished and obviously an outstanding student. I was. (laughs) You were. You worked hard. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Kim Goodfriend, the founding artistic director of Jerry's Habima Theater and actor Cynthia Outman. How would you finish this sentence? Some people who don't bother to get to know me see only... Some people who don't bother to get to know me will see only my disability. Yeah, and that's not you. That's not all of you. Right. I can tell you a little something about Cynthia also with her acting. She does like rehearsals, and I think because we're doing this show again, and she was in the show for the first time in the same role, she's really making some interesting acting choices for herself. There's a lot of joy now. She's not so worried about where the next blocking piece is or what her next line is. And so I have been seeing some wonderful, uh, some wonderful emotions, joy and fun from Cynthia. And I'll also tell you that I think as we were maybe all in denial that we wouldn't, when it was 2020 and we wouldn't come back, a lot of us just sort of packed up our scripts and said, you know, we're going to save these things. And when we don't know something and if it's not in the stage manager's book or in the director's book, we ask Cynthia what the blocking is for some things because she has it all written down every version of it in her script who goes where who does what and so she's our uh, our backup wow yes all those years as a good student and professional were put to good use here she she's the repository for everything you need to know exactly i think we all knew that she was pretty precise as an actor And since she's had the ability to be more silly and and know what's going on, and she's certainly emerged as a leader, we have a few people that have filled empty roles from the chorus, um, and she's helped with leadership there. We we were sitting around one night going, what what did we do here? And we said, let's ask Cynthia. I bet it's in her script. (laughs) Cynthia, do you recall your first memory of being on stage? Yes, I have. And that is in 2003, the show that we did was Honk. And I played the part of Maureen the Morhan. Ah, 
that must have been fun because here you are 19 years later. Yes. Did you do any acting in elementary school or high school? No, I didn't do any acting in elementary or high school, but I was on stage a lot performing in tap, ballet, and jazz recitals. Oh, so you're quite the dancing queen yourself. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What was the first show you recall being part of? It was Honk, and I played the part of Maureen the Moorhen. Clearly, you found it fun, or do you remember the feelings you experienced with Honk? Yes. In fact, it was my very first time acting in Honk in 2003, and when the audience applauded for us, I felt very touched. Oh, I can imagine. It must have been wonderful. And I knew then that I wanted to continue acting. And here you are. Well, I am so impressed with your work and your attitude. Cynthia Outman, thank you so very much. Kim Goodfriend, you continue to marvel us all. Thank you, and best of luck. Thank you. Thank you, Lois, for having me to be on this interview with you. I really enjoyed it. Founding Artistic Director Kim Goodfriend and actor Cynthia Outman. The Jerry's Huppiman Theater production of Mamma Mia is on stage now at the Marcus JCC in Dunwoody, playing through March 13th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll close our International Women's Day celebration by visiting with a six-year-old who's quite literally planting seeds for future generations. Georgia's youngest certified farmer, six-year-old Kendall Ray Johnson. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. A six-year-old Atlantan has set the example that you are never too young to learn how to farm. Kendall Ray Johnson is the youngest certified farmer in the state of Georgia. She is the owner of Agriculture Urban Farms in southwest Atlanta, And from the farm, she sells food basket subscriptions, donated food boxes, grow boxes, and she even hosts classes. Fulton County issued a proclamation on September 28, 2021, as Kendall Ray Johnson Appreciation Day. Kendall, along with her dad, Quinton Johnson, joins me now via Zoom. 
Welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm so excited to talk with you, Kendall. Do you remember when you first became interested in farming? Mm-hmm. When was it? So my great-grandma takes cockroach in her hand, and then takes the leaves and eat it, and then all he left is them. So some people throw them away, but my great-grandma will say, don't throw yourselves away because it can actually help you. Yes. How can those seeds help you? Well, you put it back in the dirt and let it regrow more coffee. Now, do you remember how old you were when great-grandmother Kate Johnson told you that? Three. Three? So you have been farming for half of your life. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. What do you enjoy most about farming, Kendall? Well, the most thing I enjoy about farming is playing the soil. There you go. And are you planting anything at the moment on your farm? So my winter crop is collard greens, beets, radishes, broccoli, cabbage. Yum. That all sounds delicious. So you know about winter crops and spring crops and summer crops and... Yeah. Want me to tell you all my spring crops? Please. I'd love to hear that. So I'm growing apples, pears, strawberries, blueberries. Oh, Kendall, this sounds so delicious. It also sounds like it must be... Very colorful. Do you have pictures of your crops? Mm-hmm. I have lots of pictures of my crops. I can imagine that it's beautiful to see everything as it's already out of the ground. Do you have a favorite season for your crops? Well, my favorite season is the summertime. I love the warm weather. Oh, and what what's in your garden in the summertime? Oh, usually I grow peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers. Yum. Kendall, do you also like to plant flowers? Ooh, I love to plant flowers. So did my mommy. Oh, and what are some of the flowers that you plant? Uh, roses. Wow, those are not easy to grow. Yeah, so when the winter came, our roses started to, like, be a little droopy. Yeah, well, so I get a little droopy in the winter, too. You know, we all do. I read that carrots are your favorite vegetable. Is that still true? I love carrots. What do you enjoy making with carrots? Well, I enjoy making carrots with Miss Olivia. With Miss Olivia? Yeah, Miss Olivia is the best cook. (laughs) What does she cook with you? What kind of carrot recipes does Miss Olivia cook with you? Well, carrot meringue pie. 
Yum. It sounds like you've got a winner with that. Mm-hmm. It's so delicious. It sounds it. I think maybe, have you sold those? I know you You sell some of your... No, we haven't sold that yet. No, but that would be a good seller, I'm sure. Mr. Johnson Quinton, can you please tell us about the creation of agroculture? I love the name, in fact, for listeners because they can't see it. Would you spell the name of Kendall's Farm? It's agroculture with a K. So A and then the word grow and then the word culture spelled out with a K. Very clever. Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely a play on the word ag- agriculture, but it represents a culture of progression, you know, just moving forward in whatever we do. So we try to promote positivity, especially in kids, but in everyone and just try to be a shining light for everyone to see that. If we if we share positivity with with each other, we can we can all grow together, and it's enough for everybody. Mm. What kind of food basket subscriptions does a grow culture urban farm offer? Well, we we offer like sampler baskets during the the springs all the way up to the winter months, and then we do like collard green sales and stuff like that during the holidays. The baskets are like little sampler baskets where you might have like some tomatoes or carrots or um, cucumbers, whatever we have ready at the time, we put a little sampler basket together for the subscribers. Mm. Kendall, how does it feel to be the youngest certified farmer in Georgia? That's quite a distinction. It's so great. Do you meet with other farmers who I imagine are mostly adults? Mm-hmm. You do? What kind of information do you share with them or get from them? Well, how am I grow my plants? Yeah, that would be worthwhile. I saw that you spoke at the Georgia Capitol for Women's Entrepreneurship Day. That would be women in business, and you are a young woman in business. Do you enjoy giving speeches? Yeah, I enjoy giving speeches. Well, I know you have YouTube videos for your followers, too. Yeah, I love it when they love me, and I love it when when they think about me, and I like it when they inspire me. Oh, can you tell us, Quinton, what your hopes are, you and your wife, for Kendall creating the Agriculture Youth Development Program? Well, I, I hope it does what she set out to do because she has her own goals within the company, and her goals is to meet new friends, make new things, and inspire other kids, and that's what she wants to do. She wants to inspire other kids, talk to a lot of people, and create with a lot of other people. So that's what the the program is pushing. And why is teaching children and young people about farming great for their development? Well, I think knowing the roots of what we need to survive and how it's made, where it comes from, 
just that uh, that raw, right down to the soil type of uh, education is important. It gives character and it, it helps to promote a more, just a more sufficient human being out here in the world, more more positivity and stuff. Because that's that's really what we we're we're about spreading positivity and encouraging people to move forward and progress in what the things they like to do. Mm. Kendall, what more would you like to do with your farming? Well, the most thing that I would like to do with my farming is share that with our kids and teach them how to horseback ride. You horseback ride too? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, on a full-grown horse? Mm-hmm. Oh, that is so impressive. Kendall Ray Johnson, you are such an inspiration, and I've loved talking with you. Good luck, and thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. The youngest certified farmer in the state of Georgia. Six-year-old Kendall Ray Johnson and her dad, Quentin Johnson. You can learn more about agriculture, urban farms, on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., The Atlanta Science Festival begins this weekend. We'll hear about events at the intersection of the arts and science, including a competition that highlights newly created, never-heard-before musical instruments. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE. Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.